You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hadmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today, let's talk frontier fighting, borders and no borders. We'll do a little bit of a definition here. Uh, so, I mean, I'm often asked what defines frontier combat or old school rough and tumble fighting, which is uh, obviously a damn good question because you're gonna, you can't point to a single thing and go, yeah, then that's it right there. So the answer can't prove elusive at first blush, as these myriad arts or practices or skills can be so scattered in distance, influence, environment, and application, it bears little resemblance in comparison to the closed systems that one finds in traditional arts or boundary combat sports. If there can be a single characteristic of an actual frontier in the ge geographical sense, it is that by definition it lies beyond the border. It is uh, removed from the acceptable or codified strictures. Now, be this west of the Mississippi in the 17th century or the interior of the Congo in the 19th century, what is beyond the reach of law or organized government was a frontier, which is ripe for the intrepid to venture in and mingle uh, with whatever indigenous forces they met, the environment or tribal, and that geographic Graphical definition holds for frontier fighting as well. It lies beyond the border. It is a remove from the acceptable or codified strictures. Now, we're going to go with my uh, old man Mark's idiosyncratic board, uh, boundaries here. Admittedly, to focus any effort, it is wise to have targets in a bit of direction so that our wanderings in the frontier wilderness are a bit less me meandering. Also, admittedly, my interest in wanderings may not match another's definition, but after lengthy immersion, study, experimentation, and hell, living much of this stuff, I offer my own definition of frontier fighting. So let's begin with the physical borders of frontier fighting. First, I do not confine to the American West or even simply the North American continent itself. A geographic frontier moves as settlement and so-called civilizing forces follow the intrepid who make the way safe. Borders and frontiers were always on the move. The wild frontier in the New World was the East Coast itself until settlement took root. Then it was the Allegheny Valley, and then it was beyond the Ohio River, and then, you know, on and on and on. As civilizing forces follow whoever came first and tamed up the land, and then the, the intrepid ones kind of, you know, move on. And we pampered cats kind of stay behind and then say, yeah, hey, look, we're, we're, we're part of that frontier spirit as well. No, we're not. Now, frontiers advance ahead of tameness. In 1936, George Goodchild offered a definition of Western stories that strikes me as a fine template for defining the frontier. Now, here he's referring to the literary movement of the Western genre, and he phrases it according uh, to the acceptable dictates of the day, but it stands in just fine for the broadness of the frontier idea. So, quote, for the purpose of this volume, I've deliberately widened the scope of its interest. In my view, Western has ceased to mean Western in the geographic sense. I can scarcely be accused of inconsistency, since every geographical sense must be West of something. I feel I should be forgiven, <clears throat> Excuse me. so long as the stories do succeed in capturing the spirit of adventure and enterprise, not to mention romance in the open air where life is largely lived in the role, and men are men, as the Western writers say, unquote. 
Now, again, he's referring to the old-fashioned Western story, but him saying that the genre is unbounded. It really, as long as you have that spirit and that feeling of uh, going beyond, uh, that's where the frontier is. Now, the same thing's going to happen if you take it back to the combat sense. And again, it's a very expansive definition, uh, but in my mind, that west of somewhere can, to my mind, be an easy tactic or two. It could be called from the Australian Bush Ranger to aquatic combat tactics from Polynesian tribes to, well, as long as it's a frontier with no smack of, well, stand aside, heathen, the civilized ones are here, let us show you how it's it's done. Yeah, I don't need any of that for the definition we're talking about. Now let's talk about uh, the uh, my temporal boundaries of what we're going to call frontier fighting, and temporal as in time, uh, chronological. Now also of concern is, uh, uh, very much concerned is just when the frontier ends. I mean, when does the wild and woolly West elephant morph into a, a simulacrum of what was? When does the original and brutal Subak of uh, Korea morph into the early hard-slamming Taekwondo, and then it morph again into the not-quite-same Taekwondo of today? Now, now, just to stand down, this is not a knock on Taekwondo. It is an illustration of civilizing forces and civilizing influences. I want you to have a gander at a Taekwondo competition from, let's say, the 90s, the 80s and 90s in particular. Take a look at it. It's easy. You can take a look on uh, YouTube and compare it to now. There's some hard slamming stuff going on in the 80s and 90s. This has a mere 30 years ago. And we take a look at now, and we have uh, a major softening change. So if we think about what was going on in the 90s, what was it even before that? So Taekwondo is a mere example here. It seems to my mind uh, and my eye, most endeavors start with an eye on grit and grim effectiveness, then go through a civilized sportive stage that is still mighty damn rough, and then through a commercial, get as many asses in the dojo, gym, ring, cage, on the mat, and, and the CrossFit box as you can, and uh, period, and that adds further water to stews that were formerly too spicy for general palates. Again, it doesn't mean every, every dojo gym or box is watered down, but it does mean a lot of them are. And anyone who doubts this, if you've been alive long enough, you can take a look and go. Many things uh, aren't quite as hard as they need to be. And I understand commercial forces you know, demand such thing, and you got to cater and you got to keep a roof over your head. Well, some of us do. To ensure that I'm not picking on what is considered an Eastern or traditional art, one of my beloved sports, boxing, has been subject to the same civilizing forces. This is boxing authority O.F. Snelling uh, writing in 1972, quote, Many still look back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s as the heart of boxing's history. The sport was not so highly organized, and the fighters risked greater injury for lower rewards, but there were fewer pointless matches, less hype and hot air, and there was an honest endeavor and grittiness that is often missing today, unquote. I gotta say, I concur with Mr. Snelling. It doesn't mean what's going on now is worthless. Of course not. It just says there is a grittier period that go on. And that's actually where, you know, my eye, what attracts my eye. And I presume yours as well, if you're listening to something called frontier fighting. So I use Mr. Snelling's cutoff of the 40s for both boxing and wrestling and a myriad other adjunct endeavors. Now we'll get to those adjunct endeavors here in just a minute. Uh, we want to discuss more than early boxing and more than early wrestling. See, of course, frontier fighting and rough and tumble are more than boxing and wrestling. It is all of, it is all of the vicious mano y mano weapon in your hand or not that was conducted in lawless areas. Lawless regions that persisted far longer than many assume. Here's an example. When did the Wild West end? Was it the with the last cattle drive, uh, the advent of the motor car? Well, according to many historians, like, for example, Paul I. Wellman among them, and many authority of the genre itself, including uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Pulitzer 
Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author Larry McMurtry of Lonesome Dove uh, fame, who was also a hell of a Western historian himself, the end of the Wild West is not till the end of the wild and woolly days of the Depression-era gangsters that rode roughshod over America's Great Plains and Southwest using motor cars instead of horses and Tommy guns in place of six guns. So he's uh, these guys are ballparking the Wild West all the way up through Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, Ma Barker, you know, Alvin Creepy Carpus, and so on. So I use Mr. Snelling's 1940s estimation for the sports side of things and the historian's 1930s estimation for the meaner side of things. And uh, again, I said frontier fighting is more than just fighting and more than just looking at what uh, the actual throwing of hands and the twisting of limbs and the weapons of hands was. So uh, give you an example, just a single example. Let's take a look at uh, the iodine club. We'll define that in just a minute. Uh, there are many directly overlapping skills and practices and endeavors that were once considered part and parcel of fighting or general all-around ruggedness and preparedness. And I've alluded to this in the past. Often we've gotten so segmented in a lot of our training, we uh, we think we're cross-training whenever we say, oh, today I'm boxing, tomorrow I'm doing my Muay Thai, and then the next day I'm grappling, and we put it all together and say we're, we're doing something all-encompassing. Well, you and you are definitely on the right track. We <clears throat> we're all on the right track when we do such thing. But actually, these more all-around rough and ruggedness and preparedness was a bit more all-encompassing and went even further than that. Is uh, we don't have enough time to get into detail uh, there. There was so many attributes that were considered part and parcel of just living. You didn't have to tell someone, you know, how to do a clutch whenever you're riding a horse and so on. It'd be the same thing in wrestling. Uh, but now no one rides a horse and they don't understand how that aspect works. It has to be reeducated in a different format. So uh, us separating these tasks, or these past tasks, these were par- considered part and parcel, separating them or ignoring these uh, skills completely strikes me as a disservice to true old school study. These additional skills were not considered auxiliaries or electives to be sampled, skipped or ignored. There was an assumption of, you know, we all do these things, right? It is for this reason of allied arts that other early endeavors are wisely included in a study. So let's go uh, just a single example, the Iodine Club. In early motion pictures, silence through the early sound era, lo and behold, CGI was not to be found. There was no wire work. A premium was placed on ability, not merely looking impressive. One must be impressive. Stunt men and women of the day and many performers were recruited from rough and tumble endeavors to provide the needed screen thrills with no risk to stars. So what they're saying is people actually had to be able to do this. They were recruited from rodeos, circuses, returning World War II pilots, uh, early open-wheel drivers, and sure, any endeavor where life was risked, living was large, and the civilizing forces had not smothered the wild-ass nature of the given pursuits. So, again, we're looking at people who are coming from a rough-and-tumble background. Now, many of these early stunt performers refer to themselves as the iodine club for their copious injuries. Some stunt players were specialists, but many, well, hell, most of them. Let's leave it to one early stunt performer, Joe Bonamo, who worked in Hollywood circa 1920s, to mention what was on the table. He insisted that many a good performer had to have the following in their bag of tricks. Quote, they must be a wrestler, tumbler, acrobat, strongman, boxer, and judo expert. Unquote. Others kicked in that added that they must be able to ride, referring to horses, swim, hand balance, and the list goes on and on and on. That doesn't mean everyone's mastered uh, such things. It just means everyone had a loose familiarity with what's going on. And this is a wider than you think. It's just not stunt performance. And later on, we'll get in, uh, some of our other history. We'll talk about how often and how this much this pops up that people did all of these things. Uh, it was very much like a, a, a CrossFit more so than you might think now, where we've kind of turned it into just the, uh, the calisthenic or the exercising side of it, where the pure endeavor of the uh, uh, following the skill or the endeavor uh, was more on the table. 
many uh, early Allied R's, from stevedore to keelboatmen to wranglers to pearl divers, these they had their own take on some aspect of combat, in addition to their own rough and tumble professional expertise. And I find it's absolutely fascinating to realize that there's a form of scrum that you know pearl divers are doing. Then you look at oh, this is how we cram and crowd, and uh, amongst the, the stevedore set, and it just makes sense. Just unless you're going to have different different uh, dialects and vocabulary amongst professions, you're also going to find these minor changes amongst uh, combat amongst the many of these early rough and tumblers. Now, to corral all this down, effectively, I see frontier fighting and rough and tumble living and the black box project itself as all frontier inclusive, spanning from the earliest frontiers to an approximate early 1940s cutoff, and including any early sport or occupation that had not been civilized and attracted a rough and rowdy rough and tumble element. It is within these borders that we find an astonishing wealth of practical value regarding frontier fighting and rough and tumble living. And it is through this syncretism of seemingly disparate elements that the rich vein of knowledge can be truly experienced. Now, obviously, for more rough and tumble history, indigenous ability hacks, and for pr- pragmatic applications of old school tactics, historically accurate and viciously verified, obviously, I would have you take a look at our RAW or our black box subscription service, or just hey, take a browse over there at the extremeselfprotection.com, or you can keep listening to this podcast, or head over to uh, the blog, the indigenous uh, ability uh, blog to get more of this noise. And obviously, please, if you enjoy this thing, uh, like, share, subscribe, support the podcast, and uh, t- take care of yourself, crew. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. Mm-hmm.